Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, it's unfortunate, I think, in a lot of ways uh, that, that the G7 seems to have devolved into a G6 plus one. And it's uh, somewhat sadly ironic that it comes as U.S. President Donald Trump is suddenly pushing to make it a G8 with Russia back in. Of course, Russia was um, excluded from the G7, or as the G8 as it was back in 2014, uh, and the reasons still stand today. In fact, just a couple of months ago, the G7 foreign leaders, including the Secretary of State, reiterated all of this. So is that a case of uh, Donald Trump wanting a friendly face at the table? And if, uh, if so, that's, that's most unfortunate. Look, I think the G7 is an ideal, uh, ideal setting, an ideal opportunity uh, to create a U.S.-led common front in confronting Russian aggression, in confronting Chinese trade practices. Instead, it seems as though the U.S. president is coming into this, looking at these other six countries as his biggest adversaries. I mean, the tariffs being imposed on Canada and, and Europe dwarf those being imposed on China. So, yeah, it's, it's a really unfortunate backdrop to all of this with NAFTA talks uh, in jeopardy. With these tariffs being imposed on, on U.S. allies and trading partners, a burgeoning trade war happening here, and a, a pretty uh, feisty and fiery U.S. president, as we've seen by his tweets over the last day or so, and in particular calling out Canada. So is this uh, a lot of bluster, a lot of positioning, or does this represent a, a serious deterioration of not just Canada-U.S. relations, but U.S. global leadership? Joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program, Christopher Sands, uh, Senior Research Professor and Director of Canadian Studies uh, with the School of Advanced International Studies at John Hopkins University. Chris, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Rob. So how much is, is a, a serious fundamental change in U.S. leadership and U.S. approach, and how much of this is bluster negotiating tactics? Well, I think we, we might see, as we look at how this G7 summit plays out, I, I think there's a lot of what we're seeing in international relations now that has gone on for a long time. You know, a lot of harsh words among leaders with big egos, but it was always behind the scenes. And for better or for worse, Donald Trump's brought it out through Twitter so that we have a ringside seat on almost the reality show of international relations with the outrageous comments and the hyperbole that you're used to seeing on, on cable kind of coming in as what we used to think of as diplomacy and statecraft. And where I think we have been in this last week is a real um, kind of shouting war where Donald Trump not only refused to extend exemptions on key allies for steel and aluminum tariffs that he was imposing using national security of the United States as justification, which, as many people have said, really just doesn't pass a laugh test. But he's used it because he can and because the 
Congress gave him that loophole with some legislation in the 60s, uh, back when the Cold War was on. And by not exempting the Allies, the Allies have had to talk tough. Nobody wants to look like they're uh, Donald Trump's poodle, so they have talked tough. And we saw last week, last weekend in Whistler, the finance ministers really reading the riot act to U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, which, who's basically a free trader, but he, he knew his role, take that message back to the president, and the president has been talking tough all week. If the leaders in Charlevoix meet and it's just a shouting match, then it'll be a disappointing summit, and it probably bodes very badly for the global economy in the rest of the year. But what I'm hoping, and, and maybe this is a naive hope, is that the leaders will use their skills as politicians um, to try to be persuasive and say, look, we've all said some harsh things and tweeted some harsh things. Now we need to have a conversation because we are your allies. We're supporting you on North Korea. We are supporting you on Iran, although some of the Europeans are still unhappy about the U.S. coming back in with Iran sanctions. But we're supporting you on China. We agree that China cheats and has to be called to account. Uh, and we used to at least agree with you on Russia, that Russia was uh, was aggressive and behaving badly and didn't really belong in this club of like-minded, uh, civilized countries because it wasn't really playing a leadership role, it was playing a spoiler role. With all of that, we want to be on your side. We can do a lot to add muscle to your uh, muscle, and let's see what we can do. And I think that's what should happen. Um, if people can check their egos a little bit and use this as an opportunity face-to-face to to really work through what's bugging Donald Trump, because it's so important for the Allies to begin working together again. Well, it is, but, I mean, does that matter to Trump? I mean, does does having allies matter to this president? Because he seems to be very much an America first president. I mean, America first doesn't have to mean America alone, but maybe he he views it that way. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Uh, He has one of those sort of personalities, at least observed from some distance, where he's nicer to the people who are tougher. Like, so he, he's, he's actually more respectful and cautious in the way he talks to Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping. And I'm not saying that, that he shouldn't be cautious with those characters because they're, they're dangerous. But, but then the people who are actually nice to him, and, and Justin Trudeau's a good example, I, I I think you can argue that maybe he was too nice for too long, but Justin Trudeau really did try to reach out to this president, and uh, they they weren't going to have a bromance like Trudeau had with Obama for sure, but uh, he's tried to be polite, he's tried to keep it civil, and he's tried to reach out. And uh, what he's gotten in return for that is softened lumber tariffs and, uh, well, there's the Boeing Bombardier case and now steel and aluminum tariffs and threat of a 25% auto tariff, and uh, it's a lot of negativity in response to what has been generally from Trudeau a pretty friendly approach. Um, everybody's watching Canada. And if you can't treat Canada well, I think the other allies, including the Europeans and the Japanese and the South Koreans and so on, they're going to say, well, if you can't treat Canada well, then you've got a problem and we're not going to do you any favors. We're, we're just going to kind of ride out the rest of your presidency. So he will be America alone if he doesn't find a way to, uh, to work with his friends. 
Now, there are those, even still within Trump's own party, that, that are not necessarily on board with this approach and the tariffs and the trade wars, that there are still a lot of free traders, committed free traders in the United States. Um, the U.S. president, though, as we've seen with these national security provisions, does have a lot of flexibility when it comes to acting unilaterally. Is there anything to be said for you know, leaning on others uh, in Washington who, who maybe understand this or see things differently than the president? Oh, absolutely. And I would say, you know, you've identified some some of the old, you know, establishment Republicans and Democrats who are more traditional and predictable in their views, who have always been friends of Canada. It's it's not a partisan thing. It's bipartisan, uh, not just for border states, but other states. They're also governors uh, and state legislators, business people, uh, even NGO leaders who have a lot of respect for where Canada stands and uh, have been friends to Canada, even where we disagree on issues. But I would go one step further. I think the thing that you can tell is happening when you're this close here in Washington, but that is probably not going to be obvious in Calgary and in Alberta, is the degree to which the swamp is actually saving Trump for himself. He came in saying, you know, D.C.'s a swamp. I want to get rid of all the swamp rats, all these bureaucrats, all of these establishment people at the think tanks and so on who they don't like me. I'm an outsider, so I'm not going to like them. But in the end, every day he gets up, he tweets, he sets a policy direction, and there are a lot of people who love their country, irrespective of what party they're from, etc. They're professionals, and they say, how can we do what he wants us to do in a way that is fair and not damaging? And they've been working really hard, and they get no credit for it. So there are a lot of really good Americans, uh, professionals in government, who are allies of Canada, who are going to try from within to work with Canada to resolve some of these disputes. And they, don't, they won't get a lot of credit, but they are still there. Uh, and I, I have high hopes that, you know, once Trump decides that he's too busy fighting with the Chinese or someone else, and Canada goes back to being sort of ignored, uh, at least in the headlines, that we'll will be in good shape because those folks are still there. Yeah. Well, as you say, no one takes the idea seriously that that Canadian steel or aluminum represents a national security threat, and then even Trump's own rhetoric and tweets illustrate that point. Trump has, however, pointed to something that I think is a legitimate issue, that uh, Canada has a system of supply management, which uh, ensures a lot of protection for for dairy and poultry, and that includes some pretty high tariffs, as high as 300% on, on some cheese and some dairy products. Now, the Americans may have a legitimate beef there, and, and perhaps that, that ought to be on the table. So is is that Trump's, is that a legitimate concern on his part? Is it an excuse he's now pulling out of the drawer to justify what he's doing? How big an issue is this? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, so the U.S. and Canada both have intervened in the market for dairy products. We just do it differently. And Canada, through supply management, keeps prices high. The U.S. subsidizes production, so we have a lot of supply. And that makes us sort of a bad combo because the U.S. is producing much more than it can consume. Prices are low, and it looks to export excess to Canada. Um, Canada is trying to keep production and the market sort of constrained. Prices are high, and a lot of Canadians would love to have more American milk products in and get those prices down, but the system in Canada is uh, is rigged in such a way that that. that would undermine the whole the whole support, but I say that because we're both intervening. Um, you know, choose your poison. Both right. of us are doing, I think, a bad thing. Um, the second thing I would say about that is Trump is making something of it, and this is where he had, he does actually have a beef. Um, 
And I would say on Softwood, even though we disagree, there's at least some substance to the disagreement. We just have different views. I'd add a third one, which was the U.S. concern that Chinese steel uh, and possibly aluminum was coming in through sort of a Canadian uh, pass-through to get into the U.S. market, and that the U.S. was worried about that. In each of those cases, the Canadian response was, we'll sit down and talk to you about it, or we'll come up with a plan to try to address your reasonable concern if the U.S. expressed it in a reasonable fashion. And certainly on steel and aluminum, uh, Canada was quick to say, look, we're not going to become a backdoor for steel to come into the United States. Canada acted, didn't have to be told twice, and thought what the U.S. was saying was reasonable. And what do we do? We hit Canada with steel and aluminum tariffs. That's that's a bad response to a friendly attempt to make it right. Yeah. Now, on, on dairy and on softwood, I think Canada's taken a slightly different view. We just disagree about the way we're doing things. And Canada said, well, we're having a NAFTA negotiation. If you want us to change, what are you giving us in return? And this goes to a different problem, which is I think the U.S. has approached the NAFTA renegotiation with a list of demands, but has been very unwilling to offer in return a win for Canada at big could be all kinds of things, you know, different things that would help Canada's economy out. Um, unless and until the U.S. is willing to give in return for getting, you can't have a win-win-win agreement. And I think the NAFTA talks are just going to continue to go on. Well, it's interesting because the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership addressed agriculture. Canada made some concessions on, on these issues in, in the TPP talks, uh, uh, an agreement that the U.S. backed out of. So I, I guess that's that's the president's prerogative as to whether he wants to proceed with that. But, I mean, he, he seems intent on getting these bilateral deals uh, as opposed to where we see actual progress on, on these larger trade deals. I mean, is, is he going to have anything to show for that approach? And at what point do you think uh, there's a need for a rethink on that? I think he should start rethinking now because the TPP is a very good example. On the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it wasn't just the U.S. that didn't like Canadian dairy supply management. It was also the New Zealanders and the Australians, and this is an old debate that we've had. Stephen Harper's government saw a possibility to to get rid of supply management, not because it wasn't painful and costly and it was going to cost them political capital to be able to do this in Quebec, because he could then point to access to Japan's market, for example, for agricultural goods, or he could point to gains that we were making and opening up uh, growing markets like Malaysia and say, okay, so we had to give up something and it cost us something, but look at all we got in new markets. When you take that and you go back to a bilateral, it's just Canada the U.S., where we are relatively open to each other, you have fewer cards to trade with. And for Canada to give up uh, dairy supply management, there's, there aren't that many things that the U.S. still can open up for Canada that we haven't opened up already. And this creates the dynamic that Trump is finding, which is that he has to create negative threats so that Canada is willing to give up something to avoid getting hit over the head with some new uh, punitive measure. And I just think that's why these NAFTA negotiations have become so negative. And I think a lot of Canadian observers, a lot of American observers, too, just feel very uncomfortable. This isn't usually the way Canada-U.S. relations is done, where it's threats and bullying. It's usually, well, let's see how we can mutually help each other out. Yeah. Does that leave you feeling pessimistic about uh, these NAFTA talks and the agreement's future? Um, well, I, I guess I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic with one big concern. Cautiously optimistic that what we've seen in, in just the recent weeks has been, or in months too, is a real 
change in the NAFTA dynamic, especially in the United States. For the first time in a long time, people who've been NAFTA critics have been listened to, so they've had a chance to vent some of their concerns. That's Trump's uh, contribution. I think he's brought some of their concerns to light. Some of them are real, and some of them are more concerns about automation and how that's affected manufacturing. But at least people who felt angry at NAFTA because nobody listened to what they were concerned about are getting a hearing. And I think that's a, a good thing. Nobody in a democracy should be completely ignored or shut out or told that their concerns are, are not important. Secondly, we've seen the business community step up. And I'll be a little critical of the business community, at least in the U.S. After NAFTA came through and then the Uruguay Around Agreement with the WTO, many American businesses still wanted free trade, but they weren't willing to argue for it publicly because they just wanted the benefits and they didn't want the bad press. And I think that was a real abdication of responsibility on their part. That's changed. Under Trump, they know they've got to step up. They've got to praise him when he opens a market for them, and they have to talk to their workers about and their shareholders about why this is a really good thing. And I think that's been a positive thing. I also think that we're in a great period because going back 25 years when we were dealing with the NAFTA debate in the first round, Canada and Mexico both had the attitude that, well, you know, we don't want to get involved in U.S. politics. <laughs> we're foreigners. We're going to let the Americans deal with us, and we'll sit in the sidelines, and if anybody asks us, we have an opinion, but otherwise we don't want to meddle in American politics. Well, that's changed. Canada and Mexico both are quite forward-leaning. They're reaching out to American politicians and even to American communities and saying, hey, this, this is how we work together, and you might not see it every day, but we're here to explain that Canadian trade is really important to your community. And that, I think, has had a very positive effect. It's woken a lot of Americans up to just how important Canada is. It was always true, it's just they weren't aware of it. And I think that's led to another important benefit, which is that governors and even city mayors are starting to say, you know, trade matters to us. For a long time, they do like these economic development, sort of like your Team Canada mission, where they would, you know, promote investment. But they weren't really dealing with things like NAFTA, and they've started to realize how important this is. So all of that says to me that we've had a real awakening about NAFTA. We started to realize what we have to lose here. And we did need to update it. That was always true. So we could get something really good out of this. Where I become pessimistic is this recent talk that we've heard from Trump about splitting the talks, doing a fast deal with Mexico, kind of quick and dirty before their election in July that could be ratified in the Mexican Congress's lame duck and the U.S. Congress's lame duck around December. Um, then coming back to Canada in 2019 and doing a Canada deal. The reason I don't like two bilaterals is because what you would end up having is only content from the U.S. could go to all three markets tariff-free. And I worry that a lot of companies, especially in the manufacturing side, would move core parts of their supply chain into the U.S. And U.S. tax reform, which makes it much easier to repatriate profit, gives the companies an incentive to bring money from their overseas operations back to the U.S., would make that even easier. And so you'd see Canada and, and Mexico increasingly marginalized in North American supply chains with the really lucrative and, and good jobs coming to the U.S. I worry because I think that's bad for the, for the whole continent. It really shortchanges businesses' ability to take advantage of specialization. But I can also see that it is very much the America First policy that Trump had run on. And so I really worry that that split becomes the new strategy and we kill NAFTA and we replace it with two bilaterals. That's where I become pessimistic. But in the long run, I'm optimistic that this is, uh, has been a real awakening for everyone for just how important North America is as a market and how important the cooperation is for our 
competitiveness and our prosperity. Yeah, great point. Uh, Chris, we've got to leave it there. Uh, great insight, and uh, thanks for joining us here. Really appreciate it. Absolutely welcome. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, week. take care. You too. Uh, Christopher Sands, uh, Director of Canadian Studies at John Hopkins University at the Paul H. Nitsa School of Advanced International Studies. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.